Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. 9.2 million adults in the United States have no gout about it. Gout is a serious issue. Despite effective and low-cost medications, patient adherence to therapy remains poor. Since the release of the 2012 guidelines, clinical trials provide additional evidence regarding gout management and identify new therapies for refractory cases. Today, Dr. Madison Fazio, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System Mankato, discusses important updates to the 2020 American College of Rheumatology guidelines. When people think of gout, they think of an acutely inflamed joint. However, there is more to gout than what meets the eye. Gout is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease. If left untreated, gout can become a chronic disease causing lifelong complications for our patients. Here's an overview of our objectives. Today we will discuss guideline recommendations for management of gout, review the literature concerning the new recommendations, and also identify patient-specific characteristics to consider when developing a therapy plan. Gout is the most common cause of inflammatory arthritis among adults in the U.S., affecting upwards of 9 million people. Despite there being widely available, low-cost treatment options, gout has the lowest adherence rate among other common chronic medical conditions, such as diabetes, hypothyroidism, osteoporosis. Additionally, gout increases the risk of heart failure death compared to patients without gout. When we look a little bit closer at the association of gout with long-term cardiovascular outcomes, we can look at the retrospective data from the Duke Data Bank for Cardiovascular Disease. This study evaluated patients who underwent cardiac catheterization with either baseline history of gout or no history of gout. You'll see the primary endpoint on the y-axis of the cumulative incidence plot of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, and stroke. And on the x-axis, you can see the years from baseline and the difference between patients with prior gout history and no baseline gout history. This study showed that patients who had gout were 40% more likely to have that primary endpoint of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, and stroke. The study hypothesizes that this is due to the inflammatory state of gout. We know that gout causes inflammation of the joints, but this inflammation also affects other organs in the body, such as the heart, leading us to believe that there is an association of gout and gout control with long-term cardiovascular outcomes. Here's an overview of the risk factors for developing gout. Gout develops when there is an increased amount of uric acid in the body. It can be increased due to modifiable risk factors as well as non-modifiable risk factors. Uric acid is an end product of purine metabolism and thus it is found in meat. Additionally, alcohol and beverages sweetened with high fructose corn syrup can increase hyperuricemia in our patients. Additionally, in patients who are obese, the body is in a state that produces more uric acid. There are also non-modifiable risk factors for development of gout, such as family history, as well as gender. Women tend to have lower serum uric acid prior to menopause, and this is due to the protective effect of estrogen in the body. Additionally, 
other medical conditions such as hypertension, diabetes, and heart and kidney disease can increase patients' risk for developing gout. This slide shows the pathways for uric acid production. As people, we have genetic material, DNA and RNA. Through a number of steps, DNA is metabolized to hypoxanthine. RNA is metabolized to guanine and then xanthine. Hypoxanthine and xanthine are then metabolized by the enzyme xanthine oxidase to form uric acid. And it's through the buildup of uric acid, the accumulation of uric acid, that leads to crystallization, thus precipitating a gout attack. In our patients that have gout, we can have patients who are overproducers of uric acid, excreting greater than 800 milligrams of uric acid per day, or patients who are under-excretors of uric acid, excreting less than 600 milligrams of uric acid per day. Under-excretors make up roughly 90% of the gout population. These patients have some underlying renal dysfunction or chronic kidney disease, which puts them at a state where they're not able to properly clear uric acid. This is also where alcohol comes into play as a risk factor for gout. Alcohol and uric acid compete with one another to be excreted in the kidney. So when these two are both in there crowding the kidney, um, it can lead to an increased level of uric acid. Overproducers make up about 10% of the gout population. These patients have an underlying deficiency of different enzymes, thus causing them to produce more uric acid. When we look at the pathophysiology, we can start to see our medication targets. So we have our first class of medications, xanthine oxidase inhibitors, allopurinol, and febuxostat. These medications work by inhibiting the action of xanthine oxidase, thus decreasing uric acid production. We also have our uricocerc agents, probenicid, and a newer agent, lisinurad. These agents increase renal excretion of uric acid. Additionally, we have pigloticase, which increases uric acid's metabolism to allantoin, which is more readily excreted by the body. Pigloticase has the same mechanism of action as rasburicase, which can be used in tumor lysis syndrome and blood disorders. Rasburicase has a shorter half-life when compared to pigloticase, and that's because pigloticase is the pegylated form of this drug. I do want to point out that rasburicase, though it can be used in other conditions with hyperuricemia, is not FDA-approved for treatment of gout, uh, but is indicated in other conditions. In addition to our, our pathophysiology that can increase uric acid, there are also several medications that increase uric acid in the body. And I do want to highlight aspirin and diuretics, as the guidelines provide some clarification on how to handle these medications. I'll start with aspirin. Aspirin increases reabsorption of uric acid and decreases secretion of uric acid. However, the guidelines do not recommend that patients with gout stop taking low-dose aspirin if they have an appropriate indication to be on it. This is because there are fewer therapeutic alternatives to aspirin, and when our patients have a proper indication to remain on it, they should continue on this drug. The guidelines also provide clarification in regard to hydrochlorothiazide. Loop diuretics, like furosemide and torsemide, as well as thiazide diuretics, like hydrochlorothiazide, increase levels of uric acid. The guidelines further specify that in cases of hydrochlorothiazide, it may be appropriate to use an alternative antihypertensive agent. This is clinically significant because patients with hypertension um, will often be on thi thiazide diuretics as a first-line antihypertensive agent. And the guidelines leave this open as a gray area because in some patients it might be appropriate to switch them to a different antihypertensive agent, but in some patients it might not be. In addition to medications that increase uric acid, 
There are also a few medications that sort of accidentally decrease uric acid. These medications are Losartan and phenofibrate. Losartan is the guideline recommended agent as a preferential antihypertensive medication. Losartan, as well as phenofibrate, reduce uric acid concentrations by about 20%, and they do reduce it by the same mechanism. In the case of phenofibrate, the generic for tricor, used in hypertriglyceridemia, the guidelines do not recommend empirically switching cholesterol-lowering therapy to phenofibrate. However, in patients that do have elevated triglycerides, this may be an appropriate medication um, for them to be on. This is an overview showing the clinical presentation of gout, showing how patients go from having normal uricemia or no disease to symptomatic gout with complications. Patients will start out in normal uricemia, which does differ a little bit between men and women, about three to seven milligrams per deciliter of serum uric acid. Through many of the risk factors I outlined, patients will develop hyperuricemia, or a serum uric acid level of greater than 6.8 milligrams per deciliter. And patients can exist in this state for a while without having symptoms, to which the guidelines do not recommend treating asymptomatic hyperuricemia. Over time, this uric acid uh, gets deposited into the joints through these monosodium urate crystals, or MSU crystals. These crystals are responsible for the painful and recurrent gout flares that can occur, as well as leading to development of chronic gouty arthritis and TOFI. TOFI are inflamed deposits of MSU crystals. They can develop up to 10 years after the first gout flare, and they are clinically significant because they lead to joint damage and loss of range of motion for our patients. Additionally, when patients present with a gout flare, we also need to rule out development of pseudogout. This prompts the gold standard for diagnosis of gout, which is confirmation of MSU crystals through joint aspiration. Practitioners can aspirate the inflamed joints with a needle, and then they can look at the synovial fluid and see the presence of MSU crystals in the case of gout. In the case of pseudogout, which is a form of arthritis that develops from deposits of calcium crystals, they will instead see presence of pyrophosphate dihydrate crystals. Additionally, when looking at the differences between gout and pseudogout, the affected joints differ. In gout, the first metatarsophalangeal joint, or the finger joints, are most commonly affected. In pseudogout, most commonly affects the knees, wrists, or ankles. And I do want to highlight that both of these flares are treated with anti-inflammatory agents. Now we will discuss the American College of Rheumatology 2020 guideline updates. This is a summary of the guideline updates, highlighting the major changes from 2012 to 2020. And you'll notice that many of these guideline changes aren't necessarily groundbreaking. We simply have more evidence and stronger recommendations for the existing guidelines in 2012, with the exception of what agent to use for our first-line urate-lowering therapy. The 2012 guidelines recommend either allopurinol or febuxostat as first-line agents, whereas the 2020 guidelines recommend allopurinol over all other urate-lowering therapy. This is due to a new black box warning for febuxostat, which we will discuss later on in the presentation. Now we will discuss recommendations for management of a gout flare. Gout flares are intense, painful inflammation of the joints, and there's many factors that can provoke them such as joint trauma, dehydration, alcohol consumption, and initiating urate-lowering therapy. Urate-lowering therapy is our maintenance therapy for gout, lowering the uric acid levels in the body. These medications can rapidly shift the uric acid crystals 
from the joints, thus precipitating a gout flare, which is why the guidelines recommend use of anti-inflammatory prophylaxis for three to six months when initiating ULT. The guidelines recommend colchicine, NSAIDs, and glucocorticoids as first-line anti-inflammatory agents. They don't specify a preference for one of these anti-inflammatory agents over the other. However, there are certain clinical factors that may make this decision for your patient. Additionally, the guidelines recommend use of interleukin-1 inhibitors as a second-line agent in the case of refractory gout flares. We can also use ice as an adjunct to these anti-inflammatory agents. However, heat would not uh, be appropriate and not help with that inflammation. We'll start by discussing colchicine. Colchicine interferes with migration of neutrophils to the site of the gout flare. And I do want to highlight that there are differences between the treatment and prophylaxis doses for colchicine. When a patient presents with a gout flare, we will give them 1.2 milligrams of colchicine at the flare onset. And then an hour later, we can give them 0.6 milligrams of colchicine. If we wanted to start uh, anti-inflammatory prophylaxis in this patient, we would need to wait 12 hours following that last treatment dose prior to initiating that 0.6 milligram prophylaxis dose. Colchicine comes with risks of GI side effects, such as diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. And these GI side effects can often be a forerunner of other systemic toxicities, such as myelosuppression and neuropathy. And we do want to avoid use of colchicine in the setting of renal and hepatic impairment, as this can lead to accumulation of the medication and thus a greater incidence of side effects. And we also want to make sure that we're starting colchicine uh, within 36 hours of symptom onset, as the sooner we start this agent, the more effective it's going to be in alleviating that flare. We can also look at our NSAIDs, our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Indomethacin, naproxen, and Sulindac are the FDA-approved NSAIDs for use in a gout flare. However, other NSAIDs have been used for management of gout. I do want to highlight that in the case of indomethacin and naproxen, uh, the guidelines don't clearly outline a treatment duration. They state until the pain is tolerable or until the attack subsides. Usually this will be around three to five days of therapy for our patients, and it's off more often than not that gout flares uh, can be self-limiting, limited to three to seven days. Use of NSAIDs should be avoided in patients with severe renal disease. They also increase cardiovascular risk and GI bleeding. However, if we are using these medications for a short period of time surrounding that flare, we will have a lesser incidence of these side effects. We can also use glucocorticoids for management of a gout flare. These agents are particularly nice because there's a variety of routes we can give them. We can give them by mouth, we can give them via IV or intramuscular injection for patients that are NPO, and they can also be delivered as an intraarticular injection. This intraarticular injection is going to be most beneficial in our patients presenting with one affected joint. And the dose will actually depend on the size of the joint. So the dose for a toe would be a little bit smaller than the dose for a knee. Intraarticular injections are also beneficial because they stay localized and they do not cause quite as many systemic side effects, such as glucose dysregulation, increased blood pressure, insomnia, and increased appetite. The guidelines also mention use of interleukin-1 inhibitors, such as anakinra and canakinumab, for treatment of a gout flare that's refractory to other anti-inflammatory agents. These are biologic agents that target the underlying inflammatory process of gout. However, they are to be reserved as a last-line option. These agents are given as a subcutaneous injection, and they are very expensive. 
They also come with many side effects, such as headache, vomiting, injection site reaction, abdominal pain, and other GI effects. So though they're not FDA approved for treatment of the gout flare, they may provide relief for our patients who don't have any other options. Here's our first knowledge check. EF is an 80-year-old male who presents to the ED with acute onset of excruciating elbow pain, which he rates as 10 out of 10. His past medical history includes peptic ulcer disease and chronic kidney disease. Which of the following treatments do you recommend for EF's gout flare? Indomethacin, application of heat, intraarticular methylprednisolone, or colchicine? All right, it looks like we're getting some of our responses in here. So it looks like a lot of people have selected colchicine as their answer. Uh, I was actually not thinking that this would be the best choice for our patient um, given their, their history of chronic kidney disease. Though for treatment of a flare, it wouldn't be a wrong answer. For our patient that presented with one affected joint, history of peptic ulcer disease and chronic kidney disease, he might find the most benefit from that intraarticular injection, leaving him with little risk of systemic side effects. Similarly to colchicine, endomethacin is also not wrong, um, but with this patient's history of peptic ulcer disease, it might not be the best treatment option for our patient. And with application of heat, uh, that will not be an appropriate adjunct therapy for our patient, whereas application of ice um, might help with that underlying inflammation. Now we will discuss recommendations for urate-lowering therapy. Urate-lowering therapy is going to be our mainstay therapy for management of gout, lowering the serum uric acid levels and thus preventing a gout flare. Here are the indications for patients who should receive pharmacologic urate-lowering therapy. There are strong recommendations for patients who will be the most symptomatic, having greater than one TOFI, having evidence of joint damage, or greater than two annual flares. Additionally, patients with infrequent flares, chronic kidney disease, serum uric acid of greater than nine, or history of urolithiasis may also benefit from pharmacologic urate-lowering therapy. And urate-lowering therapy is not recommended in our patients who have their first gout flare or who have asymptomatic hyperuricemia. Once we decide that patients are indicated to receive urate-lowering therapy, here's an overview of the guideline recommendations for initial choices. So overall, the guidelines recommend allopurinol as a first-line agent over all other urate-lowering therapy options. Additionally, the guidelines recommend xanthine oxidase inhibitors, allopurinol and febuxostat, over our uricosteric agents in patients with chronic kidney disease. This makes sense when we think about the mechanism of action for our uricosteric agents. They're increasing renal excretion of uric acid. Thus, if there's some underlying renal dysfunction, these agents are not going to be the most effective for these patients. Lisinurad and pigloticase are going to be reserved for refractory gout and would not be appropriate first-line options. We'll start with allopurinol. Allopurinol is a non-selective xanthine oxidase inhibitor. It can be started at 100 milligrams daily. In patients with chronic kidney disease, stage three or greater, the guidelines recommend starting with lower doses of less than 50 milligrams. Allopurinol can be increased by 100 milligrams per week until serum uric acid is less than six. Additionally, allopurinol comes with many side effects, such as development of rash or severe cutaneous reactions, such as allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. Allopurinol can also precipitate acute gout attacks, come with GI side effects, liver dysfunction, and blood disorders. With respect to allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, the guidelines do provide recommendations for pharmacogenomic screening. 
They recommend screening for the human leukocyte antigen, or HLA-B, 5801 allele in select patient populations. Patients that are of Southeast Asian descent and patients who are African-American have a higher incidence of carrying this allele. The incidence is about 7% in the Southeast Asian population and about 4% in our African-American patients. Additionally, in patients who cannot be treated with other urate-lowering therapy, the guidelines do recommend patients undergo a desensitization protocol. This would not be for our patients that have had allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. It would be our patients that presented with maybe a mild rash or other mild side effects and would involve consultation with an allergy specialist. We'll now look into allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome a little more closely. This is a type 4 T-cell mediated reaction that is rare but comes with a high mortality rate. Eight to nine weeks after initiation of allopurinol, um, patients are at risk of developing these severe cutaneous reactions, such as drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, toxic epidermal necrolysis, and Steven Johnson syndrome. And there are two primary risk factors for AHS or allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome development. The first being presence of this HLA-B5801 allele, which is why the guidelines recommend screening in select patient populations. Additionally, patients with underlying renal impairment are at an increased risk of developing this syndrome. This is due to the accumulation of the drug, thus leading to greater risk of toxicities. When the HLA-B5801 allele is present, allopurinol is not recommended to be used. We would need to use an alternate option such as probenicid, which is recommended over febuxostat. Febuxostat is also a xanthine oxidase inhibitor like allopurinol, and in many of the clinical trials in development of febuxostat, excluded patients carrying this allele. So we have little evidence and guidance over allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome and its development in patients taking febuxostat. Right. In which patient population is it recommended to perform pharmacogenomic screening for the HLA-B5801 allele prior to initiation of allopurinol? Patients with a history of cardiovascular disease, patients with a history of chronic kidney disease, patients of Southeast Asian descent and African-American patients, or is it recommended to screen all patients prior to initiation of allopurinol? Right. Looks like um, we're getting a majority of the responses in, and most people are saying patients of Southeast Asian descent or African-American patients, and this is correct. Uh, these populations are recommended to empirically screen for this allele as they have the highest incidence and rates of carrying it. Though chronic kidney disease and renal dysfunction is a risk factor for development of AHS, at this time it is not recommended to empirically screen for this allele. Additionally, um, history of cardiovascular disease is not a risk factor for development of allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, and it's also not recommended to empirically screen all patients. So we'll reserve pharmacogenomic screening in our patients of Southeast Asian descent and African-American patients. We'll now discuss our second xanthine oxidase inhibitor, febuxostat. Febuxostat is a selective xanthine oxidase inhibitor that can be started at 40 milligrams daily in our patients. We can increase the dose to 80 milligrams daily if serum uric acid is not less than six at the two-week mark. Febuxostat comes with risk of developing rash, nausea, hepatic dysfunction, and arthralgias. And it comes with a boxed warning for increased risk of cardiovascular death compared to allopurinol. Thus, its use should be limited to those who cannot tolerate allopurinol or for when allopurinol is not effective. 
We can look a little bit closer at this black box warning with the CARES trial, which was published by the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. This was an FDA-required trial to determine if febuxostat was non-inferior to allopurinol with regard to major cardiovascular events in patients with both gout and cardiovascular disease. The two cohorts in the study received either allopurinol, dose adjusted for renal function, or febuxostat, which was started at 40 milligrams daily and increased to 80 milligrams at the two-week mark if stearamuric acid was not less than six. The findings of this study prompted the black box warning and guideline change. And we can take a look at the significant results. The primary endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and urgent revascularization due to unstable angina showed febuxostat to be non-inferior to allopurinol. So with respect to this primary endpoint, febuxostat was not found to be worse than allopurinol. However, when we look at our secondary outcomes, such as cardiovascular death or death from any cause, febuxostat was found to have more of these events, thus prompting the black box warning. The mechanism underlying this increased risk of death with febuxostat is not entirely clear. The baseline cardiovascular risk factors were similar among the two cohorts receiving either allopurinol or febuxostat. However, it was also seen that in the febuxostat cohort, there was increased NSAID use. This could mean two things. Perhaps these patients had a greater incidence of gout flares requiring NSAIDs. And this goes back to our association of gout, control of gout, and increased cardiovascular risk. Or it could also stem from the increased cardiovascular risk associated with using NSAIDs alone. However, the mechanism between these two is still unclear. We can also look at our uricosuric agent, probenicid. Probenicid increases uric acid excretion from the kidneys. It can be started at 250 milligrams by mouth twice daily, and then increased to 500 milligrams twice daily after the week mark. Comes with risk of anaphylaxis, hemolytic and aplastic anemias, as well as rash. And I do want to highlight a drug interaction between probenicid and aspirin. Probenicid works at the proximal level, at the proximal tubule by blocking reabsorption of uric acid. And this action is inhibited by low-dose salicylates, such as aspirin. And this can result in a significant number of treatment failures in our patients taking both medications. So in our patients that have an appropriate indication to be on aspirin, probenicid would not be a good urate-lowering therapy option for them. The guidelines also reinforce this treat-to-target management strategy. This was something that was discussed in the 2012 guidelines, but further emphasized in the 2020 guidelines, really highlighting the timing of urate-lowering therapy, the target, as well as the duration. So for timing, it's preferential to initiate urate-lowering therapy during a gout flare. Previously, it was thought that initiating urate-lowering therapy may prolong the gout flare, but this has not been found to be the case. And we wanna get our patients on urate-lowering therapy as soon as possible, and as long as we're starting appropriate anti-inflammatory prophylaxis, we should be able to reduce the, the incidence and the pain associated with gout flares. Additionally, we want to treat to a target serum uric acid of less than six milligrams per deciliter. We can check serum uric acid every two to five weeks during the initial titration of urate-lowering therapy and then we can push that out to every six months thereafter. Our duration of urate-lowering therapy is going to be continued indefinitely. Gout is a chronic condition, and patients will need to remain on this maintenance therapy to uh, lessen their risk of lifelong consequences, gout flares, and promote overall better outcomes. 
Now we will discuss recommendations for adults who are refractive to conventional gout therapy. Refractory gout exists in patients who have persistently high serum uric acid. It's also going to be in our patients who are the most symptomatic. So not only do they have elevated serum uric acid, they also have greater than two flares per year or non-resolving TOFI. And this is when we want to start considering changing urate-lowering therapy. The guidelines provide two considerations for refractory gout. First, they discuss pegloticase or Cristexa. This medication catalyzes the oxidation of uric acid to allantoin. It is available as an eight milligram IV infusion given every two weeks. It comes with risk of infusion reactions, antibody development, urticaria, and nausea. And it's a very expensive medication. We also have lisinurad, which is co-administered with either allopurinol or pabuxostat. It inhibits uric acid reabsorption and then targets the gout by using medications that have two different mechanisms of action. Notably, lisinurad comes with an, a black box warning for renal impairment and increasing serum creatinine. Overall, these medications are found to be effective in lowering serum uric acid. They are just limited for refractory gout uh, due to their high cost and incidence of side effects. We can look a little bit closer at the efficacy and tolerability of pegloticase. This study uh, started pegloticase in patients who were intolerant to allopurinol or who had refractory gout and also had serum uric acid of greater than eight. It was given as a, either a biweekly infusion or as a monthly infusion with the primary endpoint of plasma serum uric acid of less than six at the three and six month mark. Overall, for safety concerns, patients developed gout flares, infusion reactions, headache, nausea, and back pain. And there was a higher incidence of infusion reactions and gout flares in the monthly group, thus giving pegloticase biweekly. Overall, the study showed that pegloticase is an effective agent for lowering serum uric acid, but does come with a high cost and high incidence of side effects. We can also look at lisinurad and its efficacy when used with xanthine oxidase inhibitors. So these two studies looked at lisinurad in combination with allopurinol and with febuxostat. On our y-axis, we have proportion of patients achieving each target serum uric acid. So whether they fell in the less than six, less than five, less than four, and they were followed up at the sixth and 12th month, month mark. The dark blue column shows use of allopurinol alone, showing that we have a lower proportion of patients in their target serum uric acid. The pink bar shows lisinurad in combination with allopurinol, and lisinurad 200 milligrams was used there. And in that final bar, the light blue, we show lisinurad 400 milligrams in combination with allopurinol and febuxostat. This study showed a higher incidence of those renal effects, increased serum creatinine, with the 400 milligrams of lisinurad, prompting uh, the guidelines to choose lisinurad 200 milligrams in combination with xanthine oxidase inhibitors. It was shown that at the 200 milligram dosage, there was comparable side effects when using with xanthine oxidase inhibitors uh, compared to the 400 milligrams of lisinurad, by and large making it an appropriate and effective agent for refractory gout. We will now go through our third and final knowledge check. MC is a 70-year-old male referred to your clinic for treatment of gout. He has complaints of a painful lump on his elbow. Today's labs reveal a serum uric acid of 9.2 milligrams per deciliter. His past medical history includes hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease. Which urate-lowering therapy would you like to start for MC? All right, we're seeing more results come in here. I would have to agree with the majority and say that allopurinol would be our most effective agent for this patient. 
With his underlying cardiovascular history, pabuxostat might not be the best choice. Additionally, um, this is his first gout flare, first time initiating urate-lowering therapy, and while piglotocase might be effective, we're going to reserve use of piglotocase in refractory gout. Additionally, uh, MC does meet criteria for urate-lowering therapy. He has a ceramuric acid of greater than nine and also presents with a TOFI, uh, making allopurinol our preferential agent for urate-lowering therapy. And lastly, we'll discuss some lifestyle recommendations. By and large, the guidelines include these for overall best management of our patients with gout. So primarily highlighting avoiding organ meats, high in purine content, encouraging low-fat and non-fat dairy products, uh, reducing intake of high fructose corn syrup sweetened beverages, maintaining adequate hydration, promoting weight loss and exercise in patients who are obese, as well as limiting and avoiding alcohol when possible. Um, so just maintaining that, that overall health, um, helping eliminate some of those risk factors and better control gout. In summary, treatment with urate-lowering therapy should be lifelong to prevent long-term consequences. Allopurinol will be our drug of choice for urate-lowering therapy, and anti-inflammatory agents are going to be our mainstay treatment for gout flares. We'll also want to counsel our patients on the importance of adherence and lifestyle modifications for overall management of gout. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.